I am pleasantly surprised. <laughs> That's uh, you know, surprisingly good for how long? How, how long have you been playing? Um, I spent uh, like two hours learning it a weekend ago. So <laughs> awesome! But yeah, yeah. How, is it is fucking it amazing, cool? right? So, um, in terms of repertoire, I've been playing um, the Bach Partita which I have been playing for a while. Um, but it's honestly one of those pieces that I, I never get tired of playing. I've, mm. I've been playing it almost every day for like, you know, six or seven months now, it seems. And I truly am not tired of it yet. I'm still, it's a cliche, but I'm still finding new things that are awesome yeah, every, every time I play it. So what do you say to people, which I do hear a lot, people that, you know, to start first very high level and start at, start at the top uh people that don't like bach <laughs> okay what's your you know initial take on a statement as high level and bold like that one um my response to that is usually to just leave it alone because i think there are certain composers and for that matter writers and artists that are truly beyond criticism um and and you simply don't need to rush their defense anymore. Hmm. So, you know, Bach, you know, he he's got it. He doesn't need me. So when someone yeah. says so when someone says I don't like Bach, my general response is to say okay and just kind of let it go because I think usually that's something where they either just need to listen to it more or maybe play it. Oftentimes I think Playing Bach is a, is a true thing that gets you addicted to it. Like listening to Bach is nice, but playing it is mm. truly addictive. Um, and once you start playing Bach, you have to start you know listening to it when you're not playing it to keep your fix going. <laughs> um, right. So um, I, I think I, I think Shakespeare is a similar case. When someone says I don't mm. like Shakespeare, I kind of think okay, that's fine. You know, I don't. I don't need to rush to Shakespeare's defense. The way that when someone says, I don't really like Philip Glass, say, he's, he's a living composer whose work is in contested territory. You know, people like him or they don't. And this is a conversation that's, um, that's like, worth having. So when someone, you know, lays down the, the gauntlet on Philip Glass, I am perfectly happy to rush to his defense because I love Philip Glass. Um, and he doesn't need my defense per se, but I think he does still need defending. As, as do most composers. But Bach, Bach really is one case where there's just, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to say without sounding like a complete snob, but my response is generally just, you know, maybe he just needs more time. Maybe you just need to listen more. You need to play more. Um, and you'll, you'll come to the light. I, I, I wonder how many people who have said that they don't like Bach gave it a try and then, you know, went to their deathbed still saying, you know, I don't really like Bach. Interesting. I wonder. I think the Shakespeare con comparison is a good one. One that um, Leonard Bernstein made, right, in, in his performance uh, with, with the pre-lecture to the performance he did with Glenn Gould, right, the D minor keyboard concerto. Oh, can you, can you refresh my memory on this one? Yeah. I, I, I vaguely yeah. remember that he, he uses Hamlet, right? Yeah, basically the point he was making was he, you look at the, at the script for the Shakespeare play, and it has the dialogue and the two characters, and 
basically in names of the characters, the very opening of the play of Act One. And that's basically all Shakespeare gives you. There's no really instruction for the costume, the set, the layout, the mood the characters are in, uh, all that, all that. Instead, it comes to it comes to the director's understanding and interpretation of the story and the characters to make those decisions. And then he takes a look over to the Bach D minor keyboard concerto and points out how there's very little information other than just the notes themselves. Yeah. Very little information in regards to dynamics, volume, And the instrumentation. Tempo, very broad. Exactly, exactly. And so he, he was making that comparison. Interesting. Yeah, I think that, that's, a, that's a great comparison, obviously. Um, and of course, Shakespeare, you can argue, and it's worth arguing, I would think, uh, you know, it's the foundation of all modern fiction and storytelling. Yeah. And Bach, you could very well argue, is the foundation of all modern music. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for foundational texts of whatever you're studying. Um, whether you like it or not, you have to you ha- you do have to study them and you do have to understand them and um, make an effort to, if you are going to criticize it, make a reasoned critique of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when you get into things like like Bach, or for that matter, at this point, Mozart, even Beethoven, um, you really can't make a reasoned study of, of music, of modern Western music, without actually studying these composers. So to dismiss them, you know, offhandedly is, uh, is to me, it's like a facetious critique that I don't really need to listen to. And I feel the same way about Shakespeare, for that matter, the Bible. You know, right, that's right. Our, no, you know, going back even further, Ovid, Homer, mm-hmm. um, you know, what else? Dante, Milton. These these right, people, right. You, you need to contend with them. You may not like them, but you do need to study them, and you and you need to and you need to think about if you don't like them, you need to think about why you don't like them, and then we start getting into interesting territory. But the sort of offhanded sort of I don't like Bach. You know, I never really, you know, I can't really hum his tunes when I walk out of the concert hall or. I never really, I, ne- I just never really got into it. You know, it's like, okay, well, there are some people that you actually do need to make the effort to get into because I'm not saying because it'll be rewarding. It'll just be because people won't take you seriously as a, as a, mm. as a critique. It's not one, you can't, you can't just sort of walk into the public square and say, I don't really like Shakespeare. He never did it for me. You have to actually, <laughs> you know, which I, which, you know, Ira Glass kind of did. I hate to call him out publicly and by name, but he, he one time walked out of a performance of King Lear and he just tweeted something like, you know, I can't believe, um, I, don't, I don't understand why anyone likes Shakespeare anymore. I just saw King Lear and I thought it was, you know, completely irrelevant to, to modern day, to modern life. You know, Shakespeare sucks, basically. He, he tweeted that. I was like, okay. And it, I thought it was interesting, actually, to sort of tie it back to what I was just saying. I thought it was interesting that I, I didn't really see a lot of people arguing with him or coming to Shakespeare's defense because I think everyone kind of understands Shakespeare doesn't need defending anymore. If you don't like him and, and you're sort of flippantly dismissing him, um, no one's going to really take you seriously. Uh, you, you need to actually study him and have a more coherent, you know, long-winded criticism for anyone to take you seriously at this point because, um, you know, for better or for worse, the, the numbers have really piled up on the, in their defense. <laughs> there are very few people who who actually criticize Shakespeare, or for that matter, Bach. Um, right. So I, I don't know. I mean, these are all kind of con- convoluted arguments. And I think I think there's there's to be to let's I want to like disaggregate your question a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's two ways to go about it. There's one 
which is what do you say to the person who's actually um, as a critique saying I don't I don't like Bach and what I everything that I just said is my response to that on the other hand there's someone who you know is just trying to get into music getting to more music trying to find you know different music that interests them and colloquially they say I don't like Bach not as like a grand criticism of Bach but just you know I, he doesn't really do it for me um, what do you mm. say to that? Do you, do you try to steer them into recordings of Bach that, that would do them? Do you do it for them? Do you try to tell them to play Bach? Or what, what's your response there? So, I mean, Bach is also just so broad, right? I mean, he wrote so much music. I mean, yeah. arguably, maybe more than like any of the other major composers. I mean, he just wrote, he wrote a lot. Um, yeah. And I, I'm almost like curious exactly what they listened to that they didn't like, because I could tell a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, and I would be curious, um, there, you know, um, Jacques Bono, <laughs> your, your clip from last time, Bach played on electric bass and totally jammed out to for an hour. Yeah, or it's like saying you, you don't like Shakespeare, but you love Lion King. Yeah, exactly, Hamlet, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a funny point. Um, yeah, I think with, with, with Bach, there's just so, I mean, even within just his music, there's, there's such a variance. Um, yeah. Even within a piece, even within a piece like the B minor mass, mm. you know, mm-hmm. he goes, he runs the gamut from you know very rigorous, severe, sacred music to completely flippant, fun, right, fun, right. fun little you know almost instrumental, uh, you know Italian um, little moments that he has. Uh, so you know Bach, even even within a piece, let alone his entire oeuvre, is completely uh, varied. And then, and, and then right. when you get into the performances of Bach, there are as many ways to perform Bach as there are performers. So yeah, oh absolutely. Um, yeah, oftentimes that's, that's a good that's a good response when someone says, you know, I didn't really like Bach to ask what what exactly is it that you listen to, because you know he's also one of the most uh, maimed composers. You know, <laughs> it, it's funny because his, the structure of his music is so strong that you can be listening to a, you know a complete amateur playing Bach and still appreciate that this is great music because the architecture really holds up. Right. And yet, it takes a, it takes a master of the craft to really make Bach uh, interesting and sing. Uh, at the same yeah. time, it's, it's a paradox that I haven't really quite figured out how to, yeah. how to, how to square it in my head. It, it's, it's interesting, too. I mean, um, in terms of like foundational texts or foundational works of an art form, the Beatles listen to Bach a lot. Yeah. And there's some really interesting like music theory notes that George Harrison did uh, as an analysis on some works by Bach. I forget which ones, but I remember reading that. And this is like back when I was in high school and I saw this. And I was I was like, wow, okay, interesting, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Totally. Um, and and yeah, there's kind of funny ways where Bach has or Bachian isms have kind of bled over. Um, I'm not sure if you know the Elton John song "Funeral for a Friend." I do not know. I think it's the first track on his album Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Hmm. Um, yeah, so anyway, if you listen to it, so El- Elton John was a classical piano major at the Royal College of Music. <laughs> oh, no way. I had no idea. Yeah, so he was a really good classical pianist that couldn't couldn't get his career off the ground, so turned to, you know, other music and composing his own stuff instead, and we all know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he killed uh, it. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's funny, there's times in some of his songs that it's very clear his classical training quote-unquote is coming through and in funeral for a friend the first at least five minutes of it if you listen to it it's definitely a 70s rock song 
but it sounds like, yeah, if Bach were alive in the 70s, he would have written this. <laughs> mostly instrumental. Um, vocals don't come in until like six minutes through the piece. The piece is maybe 10 minutes or so. Hmm. And it just sounds so Bachian. It's it's almost comical. So so what do you say against the charge of, of snobbery there? So, so, so let's say, again, let's like re- retrace this, this sort of hypothetical argument we're having mm-hmm. where someone says, I don't like Bach. And then I say, um, you simply just need to listen to more of it. Mm-hmm. And then they mm-hmm. say, "Well, that's very snobbish. That's very. Uh, that's not. That's a, that's almost like a non-answer, you know." Right. <laughs> so, right. what I would mean, you say to that? You hate it because you ain't it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just because you can't play it doesn't mean you should hate it. Come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, All the haters and losers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it's almost like you know when someone says, "Oh, I don't like Shakespeare because it's just too hard to read." Yeah. It's like, okay, well. Like, look at yourself in the mirror, repeat what you just told me, and <laughs> and take a good solid stare. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to, to some degree, when, when someone says stuff like that, um, obviously, they're entitled to their opinion, but it is just that. Right. And it's telling me more about them than it is about Bach or, yeah, or about Shakespeare. And um, the charge of elitism or snobbery is, is one that I'm not particularly in a hurry to fend off. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if Bach is elitist, if, if a love for Bach is elitist, and, you know, if me proselytizing on his behalf is, makes me a snob, then I guess I'm a snob. You know, I'll take it. What I think is funny is how Bach has, the way Bach has made its way into pop culture. Um, so, yeah, we already talked about, you know, some bands and musicians explicitly, you know, inspired by Bach. The Beatles, um, so much of their music. Penny Lane. I mean, that's clearly yeah, inspired by totally. second Brandenburg Concerto by Bach. Yeah, obviously. With its use of the piccolo trumpet. And then, if you listen to Penny Lane by the Beatles... You listen to some of the earlier takes of Penny Lane, some of the alternate takes, um, the Beatles anthology. You hear them using, experimenting with some keyboards and guitars, playing that famous trumpet solo. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it just sounds okay. It sounds fine. But Paul McCartney admitted in an interview he saw on on the BBC or he heard on the BBC a performance of Brandenburg Number no. Two yeah, by Bach and heard the piccolo trumpet and went, "Yes, that's it. That's it." Yep. And use it in Penny Lane, or even the the neo baroque harpsichord solo in the, in the middle of in my life. Is that the in one? In my life, it's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know I'll often stop and think about them. In my life, I love you more. 
Um, with it's uh, George Martin is actually playing that. Oh, cool! Uh, I didn't know the, that. Interesting. The, the fifth Beatle, and he <laughs> very much so earned and deserves that title. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah I mean, that, that's the thing about about Bach is it's because it's a foundational text. Um, yeah. It has it has absolutely permeated. You know, it has permeated music from the ground floor up. Like as as high as you want to go, as high culture, you know, snob nose up, you, you want to go. Bach is there, and then mm-hmm. you know you will find him. You'll find him. You know, in the in the middle of the mosh pit as well. He he, <laughs> right. he is he is everywhere. Crowd surfing yeah. on that mosh pit. <laughs> yeah, he he's everywhere. Uh, you know, like like we we had the electric bass last time. Um, right. I, I, right. I don't know, I forgot if I mentioned him or not, but um, there's this there's a, a jazz pianist whose name is Jacques Lucier. And he, oh, he has a piano yeah. trio, and he, he does, you know, these sort of jazzy um, versions of Bach. Um, you know, Chris Thiele, uh play loves playing Bach on the mandolin, and, and he mm, it sounds yeah. absolutely beautiful on the mandolin. Um, Bella Fleck plays Bach, Edgar Meyer. Um, yeah. he's a classical guy, but um, there, there's just there's so many people who uh, there's so many people of all there's so many musicians of all genres from from you know the, I don't like using this terminology, but from the quote you know lowest of culture to the quote highest of culture, um, mm-hmm. who adore, study, listen to, play all the time. The music of Johann Sebastian Bach, so it's it's inescapable. It's not it's not elitist. Um, yeah. And seriously, if, if if you're in any position to do to do so, try playing some Bach. It is. I, I'm not <laughs> kidding when I say it's addictive. Like once you start playing Bach, you like can't you can't stop. It's so fun. I love. So I do think one of the points of greatness, or how how you know greatness is achieved, is when you reach the point of parody. And what I love about Bach is how Bach, if you think of, um, what's a very Bachian sounding piece? How about the concerto for two violins? I forget what key it's in. D minor? That's the fame. Okay, yeah, yeah, I think it's it. Yeah, it's the famous one, right? Yep. But that has um, almost become like the cliched soundtrack for, you know, me sitting in my big leather chair with my whiskey globe and welcome to Masterpiece Theater. Tonight, <laughs> Shakespeare. And I'm turning down the Path of Macbeth in, in a new rendition by BBC Radio, right? Yep, totally. <laughs> And for what it's worth, the whole charge of Bach, you know, like one of the cliche criticisms of it is is that you don't it's not it's kinda hard to hum Bach when you okay. come out of the concert hall. I don't even think that's true. He is hmm. responsible for some of the absolute more, most gorgeous melodies anyone has ever heard. Yeah, no, it's true. And what, don't tell me don't don't tell me that you're humming Beethoven when you come out of the concert hall. Yeah, right. I mean right. I love Beethoven as much as the next guy. But, I mean, talk about not being able to write a goddamn melody. <laughs> um, um, no, but, I mean, sorry, just to, yeah, I mean, I find that a completely baseless criticism. I mean, again, we were, we were talking about how, how varied Bach was. He was able to do these, mm-hmm. these rigorous, you know, four-part fugues like we were talking about with the contrapunctus fugues. Um, but also, there are moments in the St. Matthew Passion that are just filled with so much pathos. I mean, it, this guy could write a tune. Uh, and arguably, he could write a tune sure. before he could write a fugue. You know, <laughs> if you look at some of his early fugues, um, they're, pretty, they're pretty Handelian. 
right uh, interesting you know they're, they're not they're not quite uh the sort of refined craftsman they, they don't have quite the same kind of refined craftsmanship that we associate with bach but bach even when he was a kid he was writing he was writing these um very beautiful tunes that that could have showed up in the matthew passion you know years and years later it's funny that box music is still some of the hardest music to play not only from a musical perspective but just from a flat out old school technique point of view yeah yeah like some of i mean the goldberg variations piano are just so hard so hard yep the um as we were saying earlier the the piccolo trumpet part from brandenburg concerto number two by bach that is one of the harder if not hardest trumpet excerpts out there it's so hard to play for those of you who don't know a piccolo trumpet was a piccolo trumpet is basically a trumpet that's just smaller and pretty much half the size, so you naturally play an octave higher. It's so hard to play. <laughs> it's it's so out of tune, so imprecise and inaccurate, and just just a real bitch. <laughs> uh, but yep. but yeah, when when you play Bach or most Baroque music, even though back then you would have played it on a natural trumpet, which is just a long trumpet without any valves, because that was the technology at the time. Nowadays, when you play that music, you usually play Bach or Handel or Corelli on piccolo trumpets. Yeah, Bach is. I mean, it's a, for if nothing else, it's a you know playing Bach. It's a great. Uh, it's a great etude. You know, I, I don't want. To, I don't want to. I mean, in every sense of the term. I mean, a lot. Yeah. A lot of Bach's music was written as um, as pedagogical tools for sure, sure. for his sons who had who had the luxury of having you know possibly the greatest teacher ever mm-hmm. being their father. Um. So, you know, you really, again, in terms of studying foundational texts, if you want to learn about the structure of music and music theory and um, how to write a fugue and how to write a melody, um, how to harmonize, you really can, can do no better than just studying Bach. And instrumentally, if you want to learn how to play your instrument and you're lucky enough to have music written for you by Bach, um, you know, those will be very difficult and challenging, and you can learn everything you need to learn about um, just the fundamentals of, of your instrument by, by playing Bach. Because when he wrote, and, and, and obviously if you don't have anything written for your instrument by Bach, just play Bach anyway. I mean, Bach was a prolific yeah. arranger of his own music. He had no respect for instrumental boundaries. And um, just, it's so fun to play um, other instruments' music on Bach. It, it's, you can just play through, yeah. yeah. It, it didn't really matter. I, it's clear that it wasn't, um, you know, near the top of his mind when he's composing because there are moments in the flute partita that, um, you know, really sound like he was writing for violin. There are places mm. in the keyboard concerto that sound like he was writing for violin because he was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. It was a yeah. yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, there's some like Andre Schiff. I know he he actually um, he as a he he is a proponent of using Bach as as a as instead of like your you know your classic scale and etude and exercise books. Um, he wakes up every morning and his you know quote unquote basics is just playing through a few of the well-tempered clavier um, preludes and fugues. Yeah. So it, it yeah. Yeah, what I mean, Bach was so brilliant about his music too, um, just from a pedagogical standpoint. It's how his music is almost like its own teacher. Like I remember learning, I mean, it's even still now playing Bach on piano, and you you will just naturally learn good technique, learning how to play Bach on piano, how to extend your fingers and keep your fingers curved and, and such, and how to you know cross over this finger to perform this part of a scale passage or something but yeah you you will naturally teach yourself good technique because that's the only way you'll actually be able to play the notes on the page even if you're mm -hmm. not explicitly being told how to like do the technique you will naturally end up doing it because that's the only a, only way to play what has already been written and i think that's just magical it's just so brilliant yeah same same with the flute and i, I suspect it's the same with with every instrument where hmm. there are some composers where um you can really make them sing while having some really bad habits about your mm, about your mm. technique whereas with with Bach he will just not let you off the hook that way if if you are gotcha. yeah if you just if you just learn if you just go into the act of playing Bach with no goal in mind except for making beautiful music you will you will by definition be improving your technique while you're doing that this is not something that you can say about uh, the music of say Someone else who's great, but doesn't whose music does not have this quality. I would say someone like Debussy. Um, mm, you know, mm. it's not the same thing where where the act of pursuing a musical goal is is inextricably linked to um, the act of seeking technical perfection. These are not always these are not two um, simultaneous qualities in most composers, but in the in the hands of Bach, you know, they have reached glorious harmony, and I think it's because. Um, a quality of Bach's music that also Shakespeare has is that there are moments when uh, I'm listening to it or reading it and I, I, it, it seems unbelievable to me that someone actually wrote this down. Someone actually composed this and wrote it down. It seems like they have, like people like that have really tapped into uh, some sort of nature's perfect music like it, it's it doesn't seem like it seems like it was not composed it was this music that was already there because it's so close to the laws of physics to to nature and in, in the case of Shakespeare to you know human psychology um, it's so close to the source of whatever it's so close to our source code that it seems absurd <laughs> it seems absurd to think that someone actually thought of it and, and wrote it down and I think that's why it has this quality where it is it is all these things it is beautiful it is pedagogical it is um, it's fun to listen. It's fun to play. It's it's absolutely transmogrifiable. It works on anything. It works in any context, in any genre, on any instrument. And I think it's because, however he did it, Bach was closer than anyone else. I think into tapping into the source code of like what what exactly is this thing that we call music? Bach Bach was damn near to that answer, whatever that answer is. <laughs> That's a good elevator pitch for Bach, actually. When when someone asks you, "Oh, I, I don't like Bach," or "Why should I listen to it?" 
huh, I never thought of it that way. But yeah, what is this thing we call music? Bach out closer than anyone else. Yeah. So you should check them out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And if you don't like it, again, fine. But um, yeah. just know that the weight of evidence is against you. And when all of these... There's, there's some sort of epistemic humility that you must apply here when if you walk out of something, if you walk out of a concert and you think, I don't like Bach, or you, you finish reading King Lear and you think, I don't like Shakespeare, um, you have to apply some humility to yourself and say, okay, there have been some incredible minds who have said that this is some of the greatest thing, that, that these are some of the greatest things that humanity has ever produced. And if I'm running afoul of that intuition, I should maybe um, reconsider and study right. more because, you know, if when you get people like, uh, you know, Glenn Gould, uh, you know, adoring Bach and Shakespeare, even people like, let's take, you know, people who are musicians and writers out of it. Let's go into the realm of science. People like Alan yeah. Turing, people like John von Neumann, people like Albert Einstein, who are yeah. by any reasonable definition the smartest people to have ever set foot on this planet. Um, you know, when they say that there is nothing greater than the music of Bach or the plays of Shakespeare, um, yeah. You know, and you're, you're running afoul of that, maybe you should reconsider and study more. Um, yeah, yeah. And to even go, I mean, pun intended beyond that, the official stance of NASA <laughs> was that this music should be on the Voyager space probe and be sent into the far reaches of our galaxy as a representation of what humanity is. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So for, for those who don't know, the famous golden record on the Voyager space probe, that is well beyond Pluto and the outer stretches of our, our solar system. Um, when NASA was sending off the space, the space probe back in, was it the 70s, I think it was? I think so. I think it was, so, yeah, I think it was the 70s. Uh, there's, a, there's a record on it, a golden stamped record with a soundtrack of sounds from Earth. And amongst that is, I believe, Glenn, I believe Glenn Gould. I think it is Glenn Gould. Playing Bach, it, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's the, the C major prelude, right, to the book one of La Terpe oh, Clavier? That's probably right. Yeah. Carl Sagan was like the main consultant on that project too, yeah. of the Golden Record. So, also pretty smart. <laughs> yeah. So if NASA and Carl Sagan endorse Bach, you know, he's probably worth probably worth checking out. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the charge of elitism is so easy to to level, and it's so hard to fight against because it's almost like a Kafka trap, or it is a Kafka trap. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I should probably describe what a Kafka trap is. Are you familiar? Yeah. 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 Um, it's a rhetorical device in which any denial by the accused serves as evidence of guilt. So mm, Yeah, okay. That's a good way. It's like I knew what it was conceptually. I'm trying to think of a way to put it in words, though. Yeah. Yeah. So a classic example of this would be um, John Proctor in The Crucible being accused of consorting with the devil. Um, the, only, the only defense is I have not, you know, I haven't been doing that. But, but, of course, that puts him in a position where you can say, well, of course, that's what someone would say who has been consorting with the yeah. devil. So right, right. you know th- th- this charge of elitism that's that's leveled against you when you you know when you go to bat for Bach and Shakespeare and Co. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a Kafka trap where you know you're put in this position where they can easily say, well, of course that's what that's what that's what you would say. That's what that's exactly what an elitist <laughs> would say. Um, if you respond to the charge charge of elitism by saying you know everything that we've said, the response yeah, can easily right. be a dismissive wave of the hand. 
uh, in which you're right. put in this Kafka trap. And I don't really know what to go. I don't really know where to go from there. That seems like a rhetorical. I, that seems like a dialectical dead end. I wonder in the crucible if you if you would have said yes, I have been in it. I mean, they're in a weird situation because the devil would never admit to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's clearly a fake. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. But um, no. Um, so what is your, what's your stance, Streeter, on playing period instruments? So yeah. So the question that is always kind of asked when you play Bach or music of the Baroque era things is is it appropriate to play it on modern instruments right uh, instruments Bach wrote for are not was not the piano was not the modern the modern flute or the modern violin uh, these are you know the the, the, the version 1.0s of all these instruments you know Bach wrote his keyboard music for harpsichord not piano so question is what do you think is I was gonna say what's your stance on period instruments but of course we should explore that but what do you think should the approach be in from your perspective so i mean i, th I think this is um it's this interesting thing where well okay so first of all this whole thing is like a, a huge can of worms and um, <laughs> this is one of those debates that musicians have into the night first of all i think in the particular case of of bach i think mm -hmm. the question of instrument is a total red herring i think it's not it's not the, the most interesting aspect of Bach. Um, I mm. think the more instruments we have playing Bach, the better, because I think every instrument adds a sort of approach to the music, an instrumental mm. approach to the music that offers a new look at the music itself. So yeah. a, a good example of this is if you look at Chris Seeley playing Bach on the mandolin, um, you, know, you lose some of the pathos in the slower movements because you don't have the same kind of sustain as you do on the violin because so Chris Thiele is playing you know the violin sonatas and partitas um, on the mandolin and what you lose in the in the pathos of the the sort of sustained legato that you can have on the violin which obviously when you when you play a mandolin the sound decays very quickly right so, a pluck is a pluck yeah, yeah. so um, you lose some of that but when you when you look at some of the fugues that he wrote for the violin or the chaconne, the famous chaconne at the end of the D minor partita. Um, yeah. You know, the violin, it has to, you, you have to almost distort the rhythm a little bit to play those huge chords that he has. Um, so, so, so the rhythm gets ever, ever so slightly off and it's very difficult to do. So you get, you, because of how difficult it is, you start getting constrained in like choices that you have about dynamics. It's very hard to play it quietly. Whereas if you play it on the mandolin, you know, playing a playing a you know a four chord, a four part chord on the mandolin is, is cake. So you know it's you don't have to distort the, the rhythm, you don't have to distort the time, and then you're completely free in terms of your dynamic options.
So, um, you know, stuff like that makes it so that I think the more instruments that we have playing Bach, the better, because it's a new look at this wonderful music. Um, mm -hmm. And to that to that extent, I think the whole period piece, uh, the whole period instrument movement, has been wonderful, because it has shown us so many different um, ways to to hear this music. Um, the question of the the baroque bow. Um, again, you right. lose some sustain, but it's a very angular. It, 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 the articulation is very crisp. So what you're you, saying, like a, a bow violinist would use, yeah, the, the broke bow, yeah. playing on a broke violin. Exactly. Yeah. You lose some sustain, but you gain some like articulation, and it creates this sort of very angular approach to the music, like almost like a vertical look at Bach rather than a horizontal look at Bach. If you're thinking about the score. Um, hmm, if that makes interesting, sense. Interesting. And that's, that's very interesting, and I think that's something that we can all now apply to the way that we play Bach. So I can play, I can play Bach on my modern flute, you know, silver piece yeah. of plumbing, and still yeah. use the same kind of approach that, that you learn from hearing someone play it on a Baroque bow. Um, but that, yeah. but where, where, the, where the movement loses me is where you get these, uh, you know, they're really accountants of history, who they have, you know, they say, you know, very didactically, this is the instrument that he would have heard this music on, therefore this is the instrument that this, that this needs to be played on, and it's wrong to play right. it any other way. To which I say, to which I just flip a big middle finger and say, watch <laughs> me. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, the big counter to that would be if the piano did exist during Bach's time, he would have certainly written for it. Exactly. He would have gone. I mean, that's he, he would have, easy counter. He would have loved all yeah. these things. I mean, he, the, all the all the evidence points to Bach um, not really caring about what instrument he's using. It's just a vehicle for his music, and right. and to the extent that there are instruments that can hold their pitch for longer, that that have more powerful um, sounds, that have different capabilities. There's no reason to think that Bach, or for that matter, Mozart or Beethoven or even Chopin, would have would have um, would have foregone these modern instruments. Um, right, right. It doesn't mean that that they're better. It's just they're they're, I mean they're different and and the whole thing of it's this asymmetric argument where where on on the on my side of the debate we're saying, um, you know it's it should be a free for all. Anyone should be able to play any music on any instrument they want. Um, yeah. So it's really it's really a non-position. I'm not advocating for anything here. Um, I'm, right. I'm just interested in in interesting sounds. Whereas on the on the sort of fa the farthest end of the other side of this debate, you get people saying who who say you know to the point that you know they say you shouldn't even be playing Beethoven on a modern piano. Yeah. To which I that's, well, that's what I was about yeah. to bring up actually yeah. is like it's pretty slippery slope when you start doing that because yeah I mean Beethoven I mean everyone always jumps to Bach's music right oh you can't play Bach on modern piano modern modern violin modern flute. But you don't. I don't hear that argument nearly as much as with like Beethoven's piano music, which the pianos in Beethoven's time were sound extremely different than the pianos of nowadays. You know, with the technology they had at the time. Yeah. And so yeah, but we're all fine hearing you know the Beethoven sonatas played on a modern piano. You know, that'd be kind of a more ridiculous argument to make. Um, yeah. Also, a side note, I think a lot of people forget too how new an instrument the piano is. <laughs> yeah, for for sure. Uh, it's only yeah. 150 years old, maybe. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's it, you know we we think of piano being this very old old instrument, but the technology behind it is very modern and very new. Only post industrial revolution technology could have made it. Yep. Whereas the violin, right? Yeah, I mean there's broke violins, but you look at you know 
Stradivari violins. They're still played today and were made hundreds of years ago. There's nothing like that in piano world. Yep. And there's something to be said about the the sort of... There are two arguments here that, that I, I, I almost, you know, to quote Quentin Tarantino, I reject the hypothesis. <laughs> Where, um, first of all, I'm not that interested in what Bach or Beethoven was hearing. They, they, the, the, great, the great benefit of writing down music is that now it's ours. It's ours as much as it is theirs. And I'm interested in, in what I'm hearing and what you know, the audience is hearing. Um, right, right. And I just don't think you know, we should play this music to be as... We should play it so that like, our goal should be to recreate what Bach heard in his mind. That seems mm-hmm. profoundly uninteresting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And the second thing is, is that there seems to be, again, we're, we're, really, we're really talking about a fringe group here um, yeah. who are like um, proselytizing for, you know, for the use of period instruments. But, 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 but the fringe groups are usually the loudest. Yeah, so. exactly. So, yeah. And there seems to be this, you know, I almost feel like I'm being crazy when I have to make this point. But, I mean, instrument technology has gotten better. So, you know, one of the problems of playing Beethoven on the instruments that Beethoven would have heard in his time is that these instruments get really out of tune really quickly. So, you know, you're sitting through a Beethoven symphony, and by the fourth movement, it's a mess. Yeah. Unless you have to re- keep retuning. It's just, it just, you know, we've gone through a lot as a society to make the sort of small technological progresses that we've made. Mm-hmm. Let's hold on to them. You know, maybe <laughs> right, right. And, and I mean, and and to, to make to make non facetious points. I mean, there there are moments in in Bach where he clearly is is writing for one instrument, but thinking but thinking about another. There are moments in the Well Tempered Clavier um, where he's clearly writing for an organ. Hmm. Um, he's hmm. right. He was an organist, and he he has like these yeah. moments where there are there are notes that ought to be sustained longer than um, a clavier or a harpsichord or a, a, what other whatever other instrument. Um, you know, the sort of quote-unquote purists play it on, the note that Bach wrote simply cannot be sustained for that long. He, he clearly had an organ in mind. And for that matter, I would say for this one particular, um, I think I'm thinking of a prelude. I forget which key it's in. But for that particular prelude, the piano is a better instrument. You know, mm. Bach may have been writing it for um, the clavier, right. but... Uh, he was thinking of an organ, and for that matter, to actually realize the music that Bach was hearing in his mind, I would argue that a piano is better. So you know we can we can do this all day, but I think at the end it, you just have to say at a certain point um, the music that they wrote down is the music that they heard. The instruments that they had in their time were probably not even the best representations of of what they were hearing. Um, you know, mm, when, that's a good point. when yeah. you hear music in your head, it's this you know beautiful abstract thing. And instruments, you know, the you know the act of creation is really the act of destruction. It's it's you know when you create something, mm. you have to be willing to murder it. And it is the case that I mean, when 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 the when the period instrument purists 
um, say, you know, we have to play this music exactly as Bach heard it, I would counter, I promise you, man, whatever, whatever you, whatever is coming out of your instrument, Bach heard it a million times better, at least. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, yeah, orchestras really didn't start sounding good until, again, the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, really. Right? Yeah. All the small things we take for granted nowadays, like the concept of rehearsals, the concept of these things, they were not really a thing during the time of Mozart. It's still not a thing in, in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> not saying it's a bad um, thing. I mean, if I lived in Italy, I wouldn't rehearse either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, um, with I think it was uh, so Franz Liszt. One of his contributions to the role of music was his his insistence that musicians sound better <laughs> than they did. <laughs> as funny as that sounds, he he was the first to demand you know orchestras have sectionals or you know people practiced like the music you know before yeah. rehearsal had rehearsals, a dress rehearsal then have a concert. Imagine you that. know the premieres, yeah, yeah, the premieres of Mozart's works and Beethoven's. The music didn't sound that; it was out of tune. It was blah 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 blah. And I guess you could, you know, make a stance. I mean, that's what people were used to hearing, so maybe they didn't know any better. But for our modern ears, again, performances didn't start sounding that good until um, at least ensemble performances. Of course, you had your Beethoven, your Mozart. I'm sure they played their own music quite well, but orchestral performances didn't start sounding very good until the mid 1800s. Yeah. No, you're right. I just tweeted at you a few days ago an awesome performance of, help me out, the Bach D minor. Violin concerto. Violin concerto, which I could have sworn it was a keyboard concerto for years. Yeah, I think it was originally written for violin. Yeah, it's BWV 1052 for anyone who's listening or who cares. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, it's performed on keyboard more often, I think. I don't know why, but... I've never heard it performed on violin until I heard this same here or or saw this performance. But if 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 you look at some of the... There's a part in the middle... There are actually two sections in the middle where um, if you watch a pianist playing it, it's crazy. It's insane. Um, yeah. it's, it's, extreme, it's extremely unpianistic. It's, it's obviously right. written for violin in that um, it's, it's what you would get if you were just playing across the strings on the violin. Mm-hmm. But it becomes you know, very labor intensive on the piano, as you can probably vouch for. Yeah, so, so I always one of my guilty pleasures that I always love is like a cool performance venue. That's not a recital hall or a concert hall or an opera house, any of that. And for this performance, they're playing at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam in front of one of the greatest paintings of all time, Rembrandt's Night Watch. Yeah, there's also right? another so, one there. Yeah. There, there are multiple paintings, right? Yeah, yeah, um, uh, but that's like the one kind of right behind them. Yeah, it's a huge painting. It's. One of the great paintings everybody, I'm sure, would recognize if they saw a picture of it. Fun fact about that painting, um, that painting is, in a way, like so bold and so powerful, a work of art, that multiple U.S. presidents have addressed the nation uh, standing in front of a replica of that painting, uh, just because of kind of like the power it emits. Interesting. Which I think is kind of cool. Obama did it a few times. Um, uh, so anyway. What, what, if that, what, if he, what if he gave the I killed Bin Laden speech in front of the Night Watch? <laughs> <laughs> no, but what I, what um, I love about this is that the, they, um, I, along with the Night Watch, there's also um, like uh, the, I think it's called the Sampling Officials. 
It, it has another name, yeah, but one of yeah. them is the sampling officials. And I mm-hmm. love that the whoever's filming, um, they do it in such a way as it almost seems like the people the people in the painting of the Night Watch and the sampling officials are part of the audience. It's really <laughs> yeah, it funny. Does, it yeah. Does. <laughs> yeah. The first so time I saw it, I, I legitimately laughed out loud. <laughs> so when I saw this, I yeah. So it's a live performance in front of a live audience, and they're just at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. And uh, yeah, I thought it was fantastic. And I kind of wanted to chat with you a bit about performance spaces and performance spaces that aren't a stage in an audience, like a concert hall, but kind of performance spaces being like this, like in a museum, places you perform that aren't your typical stage and audience setup, and what maybe you've learned or or uh, I've gotten out of it, especially as a classical musician. Jazz, you know, my jazz background, I've played in kind of a lot of weird places before but classical in the classical world this is done a lot less often yeah well I mean first of all I'm totally on board with um you know kooky uh performance venues I think that's actually something that the Olive Bach people do really well they're playing so often in museums um I know there's the videos of Shinsuke Sato playing the Bach um the violin sonatas and partitas which are incredible recordings, by the way. I think um, they're so interestingly filmed. I think they went to like a, an out-of-use power center or something. Yeah, I was gonna yeah. say like a warehouse yeah. or something. And they like, <laughs> like they like put some lights up that are that are interestingly placed, and it's beautiful venue. Um, the cello suites are all played. I think I know a couple of them are played in different museums around Amsterdam. In general, they 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 find some really cool venues. Yeah, and it's yeah. awesome. I think I mean I I love that. Um, you know, for some reason, I can't put my finger on it. It all—it almost makes the audience, it makes it makes the audience like bearable, for me. Like it now, it seems mm. like we're both here. Like it doesn't seem. Mm. It the one of the biggest problems I have with the with the stage is that it seems to be, you know, this sort of a parody of religion, where the composer is God, um, the performer is on stage, like at his at his pulpit, he's a priest. And the audience is like the sort of flocking masses, but but in the case of like take this particular video that you tweeted at me, I love that it's it, it almost seems like this democratizing force, where now I'm here in front of this you know beautiful painting, you're also here in front of this beautiful painting. We're not this isn't this whole thing anymore. This isn't this whole like you know this whole parody that we're playing out in the concert hall. And now it's just this experience that we're all having together. It's more democratized. Yeah, yeah. So in the jazz world, right, the the jazz club, yeah, is kind of like this, right? That's just the classic example, preferably underground and cool, <laughs> <laughs> right? But in the classical space, yeah, this you know the whole on a stage, blah 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 blah. You know, performers play, intermission comes, break, lights come down. It's just kind of archaic and one of those where you think the reason we do it is just we've always done it that way, exactly. <laughs> and but. Yeah, I mean, that's I, I've been to a few here around town where it was a Baroque classical concert, but it was at a brewery, and it was really cool. <laughs> it was really awesome. Yeah. As someone who's performed both on big stages and small stages, and also just in cafes, can you maybe kind of share about, like, from the performer standpoint, what you've kind of learned and what skills you can carry over from each to the other? That's, an, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, really, that's a really interesting question. I would say... First of all, I really love performing in like you know I've, I've at this point I've performed in breweries, distilleries, wineries, uh, libraries. Um, mm-hmm. It's really fun to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and 
I think a lot of the tension of performing is taken away because mm. again because of the sort of democratizing force where I don't I don't feel the pressure to be on a stage you kind of have a, a pressure to sort of be like an authority figure whereas you know when you're just playing in a cafe or a bar that's really gone right. you're 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 really just an, an entertainer um and I think that feeling is something that I would take that I take into the concert hall to, to sort of say, okay, this isn't this isn't a big deal. This, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance <laughs> around this, but at the end yeah. of the day, this is not that different from you just playing in a bar. You know, right, right. Um, and the other thing is that um, oftentimes, playing in cafes, bars, distilleries, whatever it's actually really difficult because so many things are not under your control. So, you yes. know, if you can get through playing, say, solo Bach at a winery, um, when you do it in a concert hall next, it'll be so easy. <laughs> so, because you can control, you can control everything. Um, yeah. Or, I mean, you can't control everything, but comparatively, you know, in right, terms right. of, you know, little things like temperature, noise, placement acoustics mm. how much room you have to move your feet you know it's right. it's just you can you can have everything just so so it's uh it's a really you know pleasurable performing experience so i think th- th- those are the sort of things that i that you know cross pollinate from one to the other like on the one hand um a removal of a removal of tension that comes from not taking yourself too seriously and on the other an appreciation for actually having an environment that you can, you know, you can sort of control a little bit. What about right. you? I can definitely, yeah, I can definitely relate, right? It's after you've had time playing in smaller venues, more intimate settings and things, and then you go to a concert hall where everything just is, right? You, you know when the concert's going to start, you know, you know <laughs> yeah. you're not going to have to worry about doors opening and closing all throughout the performance. The distractions are way, way down. It's so much easier. It's like, oh, okay, wow, this is nice. I'll just play the music now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where, whereas, um, where the polar opposite would be like some of my 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 jazz days. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> right, I mean, there would be like times I show up to go play jazz, and I don't even bring sheet music with me, right? Because I don't know what we're gonna play. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and there's no sheet music there either. All the jazz players we know, like the 50 or 100 most commonly play like jazz standards that are like part of the repertoire. And so they'll be like, all right, everyone know Yardbird Suite by Charlie Parker? Great. One, two, one, two, three, four. Da, 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 da. And then, yeah, you just got to jump in and play it. And then, you know, the, the tenor sax player who's running the gig will be like, okay, so we'll each take four choruses on the solo is that cool so we'll start with you chris on trumpet and we'll go right you just gotta be able to roll with it and fly yeah and truly improvise <laughs> and to someone who uh, is classically trained without you know really any experience playing jazz you know i any anytime i'm kind of put in that kind of situation that's that's nerve-wracking i would, I would right, much right. rather you know play solo bach in a big concert hall <laughs> right it depends the way you look at it right but it's also liberating at the same time Right. Yeah, you're not totally. It's not like a piece on the program. Everyone's expecting you to play it now, and you gotta play it this way. And and also, this isn't radical, right? This is like back to the origins of Western music. I mean, yeah. Western music 
writing down Western music has only been done for five, six hundred years. And in terms of our modern notation, it used to be all music was just improvised. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, you know, there weren't pieces. It was, for lack of a better phrase, jam sessions back in the Middle Ages. And it was all that music, especially when you got to um, secular music, right? Music that wasn't religious and Gregorian chant and and other types of chant. You know, everyone thinks all chants Gregorian. Not the case. Um, Instrumental music for the longest time was always improvised. And modern notation is a pretty recent, relatively speaking, phenomenon. So so it's it's not that radical at the end of the day. And that's that's going back to to Bach. Um, Again, he's just so close as a source code on this, where there are two facets to Bach. There's Bach the improviser and Bach the organizer, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the most pleasurable things about listening to Bach is is being so close to the apotheosis of both of these aspects of music, the sort of organizing principle, the organizing of abstracted sound, and the sort of just jam session element, you know. And someone like Bach can just, you know, flip on a dime in ways that are astounding, like the, the piano cadenza to, or the keyboard cadenza and at the end of the first movement of Brandenburg Five. You know, yeah, he goes from it's it is an it is this the chord structure is actually a sort of old German chorale. Um, but he he sort of variates it in a sort of Italian instrumental way. And then as you get into this cadenza, it's it's very rigorous. And then all of a sudden, there just it comes this moment where it flips. And we can put a clip here where it just devolves into chromaticism. And that's Bach, the improviser. He's just, yeah, yeah. That condenser is nuts, and that's written out. That's not an improvised. Exactly. I mean, it sounds improvised because it was the right. goal. The goal, yeah, right. The goal is to make it sound improvised. Yeah. But Bach actually notated all that, and that is, I think, is so hard. And I love how the final cadence it comes back, and the rest of the, yep. or the ensemble comes in to, to finish out the rest of the movement. I always smile every time I hear that moment. It's one of the great <laughs> moments in all of music, and one of my favorite memories is uh, I was with a friend. Um, who we were listening to the Brandenburg Concerto together. And yeah. um, when the cadenza happened, and that moment happens where it turns improv... In the fifth one, yeah. we're still saying. Yeah, yeah. sorry, yeah. the fifth one. Yeah. And when that cadenza happens and it turns improvisatory, yeah. um, he, he turned to me and he said, well, this is obviously not written by Bach, right? This was written by... This was like a modern cadenza that he just wrote or he just improvised. Like, this is obviously, <laughs> not, this is obviously not Bach. And I was like, no, it was, it, this is written down this way. Everyone plays yeah. it like this because, you know, he was insane. I mean, and again, that just goes back to it. His, his music is timeless. You can listen to it now and, you know, it sounds like it could be, you know, written by yeah. some a metalhead right now, really. Yeah, and it's funny when you watch um, when, when you watch any live performances of that fifth Brandenburg concerto, at the end of the first movement, after that giant, ridiculous, 
keyboard cadenza and there's that trill and then the rest of the ensemble comes back in. You'll see every keyboardist ever. They always glance up at that part. <laughs> like, everyone's still with me? Yeah, okay. now we're back. Let's yeah. end it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because it's just a few minutes of this just crazy keyboard part, and that's ridiculously hard. And it's just so... It's without fail. Yeah, <laughs> it's just so off the book. It's so off book. It's great. But yeah, I mean, to, to go back to your point, I mean, yeah, I think part of, part of the, my frustration with the concert hall is that it just ossifies all these things that they began as, as you know, they began in a very fun way for lack of a better term i mean we are we are you know playing music we are playing these instruments it's i don't think any, i don't think anyone this isn't this is not an art that that uh was ever stuffy it, it was never like a highbrow thing M- music music is an art that is for illiterates you know <laughs> not not necessarily you know literal illiterates but it is something that everyone gets, everyone can get, and it's meant to be for everyone. And it's always been this thing where, you know, what it is at its core is just a bunch of people getting together to, like, have fun yeah. and, and jam. And that's what, that's what all great music is. That's what Bach is, even when you get into highly academic music like Schoenberg, you know, that's, it is at the end of the day, it's just, it's fun. And, you know, one thing that the concert hall seems to, seems to sort of put in place and then repeatedly ossify through tradition is this thing of, uh, it's, that, that impulse seems to be completely lost. Now it's like mm-hmm. this sort of gladiatorial um, show-off, um, show-off slash, um, like show show off on the on the side of the performer, but then on the side of the audience, like show off how much you know about this music, you know. And it's, it's like a circus act. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and so to bring it back to what you were saying, I mean, I think one really easy way to keep the sort of the communal spirit of live music to keep it alive while like crushing the sort of stale culture of the concert hall is to bring it into places like um, like the museums. And yeah, the cafes yeah, and the bars. Like, let's repopulate these places um, with music as they ought to be. I mean, when they reopen, you mean? <laughs> when they reopen, yeah. yeah, yeah. Not right now. Not right now. But, um, but I mean, like for example, the going going back to all of Bach. I mean, they there's a con- yeah. there's a cantata that Bach wrote that's known as the coffee cantata. Um, you know, Bach oh, Bach famously that. loved beer and coffee, and um, and he wrote a cantata beer. about one of these things. It's a, it's a secular cantata, and um, it's really funny. Um, and old performances of it, are still I think even still some modern performances of it, are played in, this, in the same sort of way that, you know, you bring the sort of all, all the sort of emotional baggage to Bach. But these all of Bach people, you know, they do it, I think they do it in, a, in an actual cafe with people just sitting around oh, having really? coffee, okay. yeah. And, and they do this, you know, very fun um, interpretation of the coffee cantata in a cafe. And yeah, yeah, more of this, please. 
hat man nicht mit seinen Kindern. Hunderttausend, hunderttausend Hudelei. Hunderttausend Hudelei. Hunderttausend Hudelei. Hat man nicht mit seinen Kindern. Hunderttausend Hudelei. Was ich immer alle Tage meiner Tochter.